Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. April 1st, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, today law, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see people here in the chat room are talking about April Fool's Day jokes, and you know, it's kind of tough to do a show on April 1st. You know, it's April Fool's Day. People are always wondering whether you're saying something that should be taken seriously or not, or you're committing a joke on them. Uh, There were a couple that I noted out there. One, I wasn't taken in by it. Yesterday, the Jezebels, who are based out of Australia, which, you know, they're one day ahead of us, they posted a thing that said that for one day only, you could get their entire catalog of music which they had, you know, re-recorded in the style of ABBA, and then they had this little graphic, and it said Jezabba bells, <laughs> and they say available today only, so you can go get that. And then Ted Cruz had a good one today, and I guess I'll leave it to you to go to Ted Cruz's page on Facebook and see which post it is that I'm talking about. But that one actually took me in, so I had to go ahead and share it because I thought it was a pretty good one. But I thought, you know, actually today I wasn't even going to do a show. You know, the weather's really nice. It's spring in Southern California. Really, the best thing would just be to go outside to find a place with a view of what the Jezebels would call the great white ocean and uh, deep white ocean and, uh, you know, just relax or something. But I'll do that on another day. Um, Here, I am very excited to do an interview. And that's what I figured would be the best way to deal with it. If I'm doing an interview, I'm not playing a joke on you. I'm interviewing somebody that I'm very excited to talk to. Timothy Sandifer. He is currently the vice president of litigation at the Goldwater Institute. And I wanted originally to talk to him about the topic of banishing property rights. And as a matter of fact, he's got three books. And one of the books specifically focuses on property rights. It's called Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America. But if you go to Amazon, he's actually got a couple other books that you can buy and give him your business. 
One of them is actually a more recent book, although I've got the, you know, the redo of Cornerstone of Liberty that was published, republished in December 2015, if I recall correctly. But he also has a book called Conscience of the Constitution, published last year. And then if you go back further, his first book is called The Right to Earn a Living. So I am really pleased to welcome him. I got to be on a panel with him last year, and I was excited to do that. Tim, are you here on the line? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me on. Welcome to the show. So I did want to talk to you about this issue of property rights, but another thing that has gotten me intrigued of late and that you're working on is the so-called Indian Child Welfare Act and the case of Lexi Page. And I do want to talk about that with you later because it looks like you're doing some very important work on that as well. So thank you for joining us. Um, uh, The couple cases that were brought to my attention that I thought, you know, were really kind of alarming. One of them, I had sent you a link to it. It's about the EPA charging property owners $16 million for building a pond on their property. Yeah, it's a really, it's really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so extreme. You were talking about April Fool's. Sometimes you hear these stories and you think it's got to be an April Fool's joke, but it is right. really true. Um, this is the case of, uh, of a landowner named Andy Johnson who uh, is being charged with violating the Clean Water Act because he put a, a pond on, on property that allegedly belongs to him. But under the Clean Water Act, the federal government has enormous control over not just water. You would think that the Clean Water Act only affects water, but no. It also affects what the government calls wetlands. And uh, just to be quite clear, land does not have to be wet in order to be a wetland under the uh, federal rules. In fact, basically a wetland is whatever the federal government says it is, or rather what bureaucrats in the unelected Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers say it is. And in, and developing or doing anything on wetlands without a federal permit carries very serious criminal and civil penalties. Wow. And so what, how do they come up with this figure of $16 million, though? I don't even get. That seems so excessive. Well, what happens with these uh, these uh, uh, Clean Water Act cases is people develop something or they affect the property in some way without federal permission. And so then they're sent, the EPA sends them a what's called a compliance order. And a compliance order says, congratulations, your land falls under federal jurisdiction because we've decided that it's a wetland. And that means that what you've done on your land is illegal and you have to remove it and do the following things with your property. You have to restore it to its natural state by planting the following plants at the following locations. I mean, these things are extremely detailed. That's what happened. Oh you might have heard of this case some years ago. The Sackett family in, in Idaho had this happen right. to them. They were trying to build a house and the government, they got a, a one of these orders from the government said, and it, it specifies what plants you have to put on the property where and and it says you have to allow the federal government to send its agents onto your property to inspect and make sure that you're following the law at any time and so and anyway at the bottom of the order it says and if you fail to comply you're subject to $75,000 per day in fines right that now that was that was what pretty the quickly. got right that was the, that's what that's the right. got and that's similar that's right. to what happened in this case as well that's right. They, because it's it's thirty five thousand or th- something like thirty five thousand dollars a day for failing to comply with the order, but it's another thirty five thousand or so on top of that for for violating the law, even though you haven't been proved guilty of violating the law. 
Now, instead, the government has simply sent you an order telling you that you're in violation of the law. So what happened in the Sackett's case a couple of years ago is they said, well, gosh, if you're going to send us one of these orders and you're going to start fining us, then we're entitled to a hearing. We, you know, we, we should at least have a day in court to argue about this. And the federal right. government said, no, you're not entitled even to a hearing. You have to wait for us to sue you, and then you get a hearing. Well, of course, they can wait as long as they want, and by that time, the $75,000 a day uh, limit, it's been going over. I always imagine that scene at the end of the movie Airplane where the guy is still sitting in the taxi and the movie oh. has been running the entire movie. That's what happens is you know the $75,000 a day has added right. up over all this time, and then the government comes after you. And so that's very similar to what happened to, the John, to Johnson in, the, in his case. And right. the, the Clean Water Act is an extremely dangerous and powerful tool in the hands of the federal government. It's just like the Endangered Species Act in the, in the sense that what it really boils down to, <laughs> forgive the pun, is that yeah. it, it's federal zoning. This is federal zoning law where, the, where federal officials in Washington, D.C. get to dictate how land is used throughout the country based on whether it's deemed to be a wetland or whether there's an endangered insect or plant on it and that sort of thing. Yeah, so this is why it could make a difference who we elect in this next cycle because at least one of the candidates promises to do away with a whole lot of this and probably the others are all going to keep it or increase it. Which is, uh, it would be nice to see somebody rein in the power of these administrative agencies. I think there's no greater threat to the Constitution in this country than these administrative agencies. People often think that, well, Congress passes all these laws that take all our rights away. Actually, Congress only passed about 85 laws last year, and that's not unusual. They passed relatively few actual laws. Meanwhile, the Code of Federal Regulations has expanded like crazy. Most of the laws under which you live your life are actually part of these regulations that are written by unelected bureaucrats who are members of government unions, so you can't even fire them. Right. I mean, taking over the Internet as a public utility is one of these examples, right? That or – I mean, there's, there's countless examples of this. Federal regulations right. written by officials in, in Washington, D.C. control everything from the thickness of ketchup in fast food packets <laughs> to the angle at which your chair can recline in your office. So oh every gosh. detail of your life is somehow or another controlled by these vast federal bureaucracies that even your elected officials can't really control. Even the president of the United States has relatively little power to control even the State Department. I mean, I was, I've been recently reading a biography of Barry Goldwater, and it was very interesting. He, the, the first thing he did when Nixon became president was he tried to persuade Nixon to get control of the State Department because policies – International foreign policy is being set by officials who are not elected, who are who enjoy civil service protections and cannot be even fired in a lot of these cases for the bad decisions that they make. Wow, this is this is going to get scary. Now, if I go back to the issue of property rights, what we've been talking about with the EPA is what you would call, I I think, a regulatory taking. Right? It's a regulatory taking of their land, telling them that they can't use it a certain way that they want to, or they must use it a certain way that the government wants to, but technically they still keep the title to the property, right? That's right. That's what happens a lot of the time. You know, a lot of attention about 10 years ago was focused on the, that awful Supreme Court case about eminent domain, Kilo versus mm -hmm. New London. 
And people were shocked and horrified that the government could come and take away their their property and give it to somebody else because it prefers to have the other person own the property. And they ought to be shocked by that. But in fact, most of the violations of your property rights that go on in the country are done through these regulations that take away your right to use your land or force you to use your land in a way that you otherwise would prefer not to. And what's really upsetting is that in almost all such cases – people are not entitled under the current law to just compensation when the government does that. There's a Supreme Court case that says you're entitled to compensation if the government deprives you of 100% of the value of your property. But of course, all that means is that the bureaucrats find ways of taking only 99% of your property, and then they owe you zero under the current federal and most state precedent. I think one of the most horrifying cases in your book is the one concerning owners of land in Lake Tahoe who were prevented from developing or, you know, building their homes on this land for decades. I think you said there were 700 and some odd property owners affected. 300 of them had died before even the litigation had completed. And they're deemed not to really have been deprived in any way, even though the delay was decades and they were prohibited from building on this land. How how can this even be in the United States? This is what you don't even understand. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is shocking. I the the Tahoe case. Uh, what happened was it was a it was a temporary moratorium on construction, and that temporary moratorium just got kept getting renewed over and over and over again, and so that you could not build anything on your property. It totally wiping out the value of people's property and leaving them with the liabilities. I mean, what happens is people aren't allowed to build something on their land, but they still have to pay property taxes on it. They're still liable if somebody trips and falls on the property. I mean, the, the, it becomes – the land then becomes a burden. And because of the lengthy delays in litigation and because of all the – procedural tricks and so forth that the courts have have imposed in the way of property owners seeking to vindicate their rights it becomes a you know a multi-decade process in fact i was i was happy to see in the news last week i believe it was the Kuntz family in florida was finally compensated for the taking of their land 20 years ago by the <sighs> state of by officials in the state of florida and this was one of these regulatory takings cases and it's really a shocking example of what we were talking about so what happened was the Kuntz mr Kuntz, he wanted to build something on his property. And he knew that if he applied for a permit, the government would demand that he pay them off somehow in exchange for a permit. So rather than fight them, he was willing to do that. He went in, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like about 20 acres of land that he owned that he went into and he requested a permit to develop. And he said, in exchange for this 20 acres, I will give you basically 15 acres. And the, the bureaucrat said, well, okay, but we also want $100,000 in in cash to pay for repairs on government-owned property that's miles away from his land that had nothing to do with his building project. It was, was, was plainly like what the he, he had to build the curbs or something on the land. That's right. It was the... to repair repair culverts and and uh, drainage areas and things that the that the government owned. And you know the Supreme Court has said that the government can require certain things in exchange for a permit under certain circumstances, but only if what they're demanding from you, you know, remedies some harm that you're causing. So, for instance, if you're polluting the 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 area, the government can say, well, we'll give you a permit, but only if you stop the polluting. You know, they can do things like that. But right. here it was just a it was just a plan of extortion. 
So he challenged that, went through the state court process. It has to go to state court because the, one of the procedural hurdles I mentioned is that you're not allowed to go to federal court first, So, right. which is – there's nothing in the Constitution that says that, but the court has simply said so. So he goes to the, federal, or the, the Florida courts, and the Florida Supreme Court said – well, you know, that limit on uh, that says how whether the government can require things in exchange for a permit, that that limit only applies if the government demands land from you. If they demand cash from you, anything goes. They can demand as much cash as they want from you. So wow. he challenged that, and it finally got up to the Supreme Court. By that time, actually, he had died, and his children were litigating the case on behalf of the oh. estate. And they finally won in the Supreme Court only only a couple of years ago, led by my former colleagues at the Pacific Legal Foundation who litigated that case and are litigating the Andy Johnson case that you mentioned earlier. And finally, just, just last week, the family received the compensation that they were entitled to under the Fifth Amendment. You know, one of the things that you uh, are kind of talking about obliquely here is that there are families who are counting on this property in order to be able to leave something to their children, either maybe a home or a place for them to live, or it could be something that would provide income for them. And this is one of the things that's being taken away from people through you know, these regulatory takings and other ways that the government's diminishing property rights. I was going to back up a little bit. I mean, these are horrific cases, and I think they're a good place for us to start. But what is at stake here? You know, yes, this ability to provide things for people that you care about, your family members and things, is, is of course, at stake. What else is at stake with property rights? Why do we care about property rights? Yeah, property rights perform a lot of different functions. And what I say in the book is that if, you th if property rights, it's best to think of property rights like like we think of DNA or or fire. They're they're natural, but they're also great discoveries of the human mind, and and mm -hmm. they unleash tremendous potential energy, just like fire or the understanding of how DNA works, uh, unlocks a, a tremendous potential for further discovery and, and creativity. And property rights does that. It is a natural function of, of life to differentiate ourselves from the outside world and from others, or to combine ourselves with others with sh and protect ourselves from the environment with shelter and things. So there are, it's basically a biological drive at bottom. But there's also a, a, a tremendous amount of cultural connection and social and political um, uh, results from this natural aspect of humanity. And so, the, so property rights also perform certain economic functions. They allow us to prioritize things, to put uh, economic values on things so that we know how much – of a, of a resource needs to go into one thing or another. There's a, the great economist Ludwig von Mises uh, explained this it, with a very simple example. He said, imagine that you're building a railroad and you come up to a mountain and you have to decide whether to dig a tunnel through the mountain, build the, the, train, the railroad over the mountain, or go around the mountain. The way right. you're going to make that decision is by comparing the costs and the benefits of you know, the dynamite for blasting the tunnel versus the wood necessary to build the bridges versus – and you make these comparisons of, of how much the resources cost, and you can come up with the most cost-efficient way to do your thing. If there were no such thing as property rights, he, he explained, there would, it would be impossible to make that calculation you, because if the government owned everything, there really would be no need for any kinds of trade-offs or anything. And like the famous uh, example of Buridan's ass, you would starve to death between two equally uh, tall piles of hay. You know, it would be impossible to make the calculations necessary to, to act, which is fundamentally one of the reasons why socialism 
cannot work. So right. it, it, that's the role that property rights helps play in an economy is it helps us to make the choices of how to behave economically. But I do – I try in the book to emphasize that we shouldn't regard property, as, as we sometimes do, as purely an economic phenomenon. Right. Property rights protect an essential aspect of what we are and who we are. And a, the example that I like to give is my, my wedding ring. Mm-hmm. I wear a wedding ring that isn't worth very much money. It costs me about 250 bucks. It's not made of a precious metal. It's made out of a titanium alloy. But it, the reason that it's valuable isn't, doesn't have anything to do with the, the materials that went into it or anything like that. Uh, I mean, it sort of does, as I'll explain in a minute. But it's what, the reason a wedding ring is valuable, the reason we care about wedding rings is what they symbolize, what they represent, what they stand for. How, and we use wedding rings to signal other people and to signal ourselves and to signal our loved ones about the bond that we share. It, it, it serves as a way of focusing our memories, our fond imaginings and things like that. I mean, there, it has a psychological and spiritual dimension to it. Now, right. my ring happens to be not just a, a, a connection to my wife, but also to my family because my r- ring is also made out of an engine part from an airplane, the SR-71 Blackbird, which my father and grandfather were engineers uh, at Lockheed who worked on this airplane. And so wow. it matters to me that the ring represents both my, my birth family and my chosen family, and that's why I got the ring. It would be impossible to pay me enough money as just compensation if you were to take away my ring. It just could not be done. You couldn't pay me enough money to make up for me what the ring represents. Now, we tend to call that um, – we call it a, 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 a personal value or, or a, a – Sentimental um, What's value, the word for right? it? Sentimental. Yeah, exactly. Right. Sentimental value. But really, all value is sentimental value in that sense because the very choice to live or not is a personal individual value. You know, I, I guess if I there are circumstances in which I would choose not to live. So I guess you could say that food has no value because it it's only related to my choice to live, right? Well, that's nonsense. Of course, it has value because all value is personal, individual value. So to say, well, we're going to discount the, your your sentimental value because we that doesn't really matter. Of course, it matters. It's all that matters. So saying, well, we'll make just compensation in the form of money is at best an imperfect, poor measurement of what property rights really represent for people. It's an essential part of what we are as human beings. Right, right. I agree. And I, I really like your example of the wedding ring in the book. And the other thing that I like in your section on the value of property, the the nature of property, the importance of property, is the emphasis on privacy, on the ability of property to protect our privacy, because this is something that's been a pet issue of, of mine forever. And I've always thought that the root of privacy really is property. So I was pleased to see you emphasize that. How did you get thinking about that issue? Yeah, you know, private property rights. Or well, when you talk about privacy, uh, pri- all rights, in some sense or other, are rights to privacy, because what it means is that it's a private matter. It means that it's not up to the public to decide about how to do this thing or that. It's my private decision whether to do this thing or that, which is why I have the right to do something that's wrong. That's something that confuses a lot of people. How is it possible for me to have a right to do something that's wrong? Now, I don't have the right to do something that's wrong to somebody else because I don't have the right to violate their rights. But I have the political right to get drunk if I want to 
or or to to screw up my life by or you know by refusing to to work hard or refusing to study in school or what I mean I have the right to do these things that are bad for me. Why? Because that's my life. It's it, it's a private decision. So in that sense, all rights are privacy rights. And property is the is the most important protection for that privacy, uh, uh, and you can see any number of examples of this. A good a good one would be would be um, uh, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King wants to protest segregation in his home state, so he gets up in his pulpit and he preaches to the congregation and he says it's immoral that the government separates us on the basis of race. That would not be possible if it was impossible for private congregations to own churches as private property. If the government owned all the churches, this, right. the, Alabama would have taken his church away, and, pro, and, and, and it would have been impossible for him to spread his message. It's impossible to have freedom of the press if you can't own a press or a printer or a, an internet connection or whatever it is people use to, for freedom of the press nowadays. It would be impossible right. to have our other kinds of rights if we don't have pro property rights to protect us from the political process. Not long ago, my parents took a tour of a country, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was some country in South America, and the, the tour guide pointed out to them how the houses were all painted these kind of unusual colors. And he explained that when, when somebody runs for office, they, the person chooses a color for their political campaign, and you're supposed to paint your house the color of the candidate you support. And then when you, if your guy wins, you get rewarded for it, and the people whose houses are painted the wrong color, they get punished for it, and, wow. if, and vice versa, right? Well, the reason we don't have something like that in the United States, the reason why it's, it, the Constitution makes it safe to ignore who is the president of the United States is by protecting my privacy rights, my property rights, my ability to go home and live my life behind closed doors without anybody else bothering me. That's the purpose of the Constitution is to protect us against politics, to make it safe to ignore who's running for president. And frankly, if there was ever a year when Americans needed to be protected <laughs> against right. worrying who's running for president, it's this year. Oh uh, yeah, I've seen a meme going around about how, you know, everybody's rotten, you know, two thousand sixteen or something, and that's basically all you can say. I don't know that I go quite that far, but uh, we can My we can candidate talk about is Barry Goldwater. You're okay. Well, I, I wouldn't He's be surprised about that. He's rested and ready, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, ni it'd be nice to have Barry Goldwater back here today as, as one of our options. Unfortunately, we don't, so we have to choose from the plausible ones that are that are there. Um, on, on privacy, at some point, we could you know have this debate, but the the way that you're talking about it, you sound almost like Brandeis, where he would say that privacy is really the fundamental and property is more of the consequence. And for me, I thought, well, there is a strong connection between the two and that it really, I, to me, I think property is the foundational right. And then privacy is a value that property can provide. But I would describe the rights just in terms of liberty and property and then privacy as the value that you get from those. But we can... We can have that debate the other day. I don't no, that's a good. Yeah, that's a guess. good point. I like the way you put that. That's that is that's a that's a very valid observation. That that privacy is more the value that the rights protect, and that and yeah, that's a, I, th I like that observation. Right, because you know, and I, you know, I'm a big Rand uh, aficionado. So for her, all rights are rights to action, and so the actions that you're taking are exercise of your liberty, exercise of your right to property, to earn and keep. Those and then you can, with those values, create privacy. But I, the the way you think about the fundamental privacy issue is, if you're in society, 
the demand as a fundamental matter that people look away from you couldn't really be. It's not, it's not a fundamental right. It's something that you can create for yourself within society using your rights to liberty and property. So that's kind of how I see it. It's what you would call a reductionist account, I guess. But um, we can talk about that another day. Um, so I think we've gotten a lot about the, the value of property. You know, for Rand, she talks about the need to be able to earn and keep property in order to sustain your life. You know, the fact that we are not ghosts. Um, so beyond the fact that there are there's a lot of sentimental value to things like uh, wedding rings and our, our homes, you know the environments we create for ourselves in which to live, the ability to express ourselves. There's just the basic food, clothing, shelter aspect too, and noting that the fact that we're not ghosts and we can't live unless we are able to have access to reliable access to property over long periods of time. And how do you do that with the right to property? So. That's a you know kind of another way that I think about it. Yeah, that's right. And 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 Rand holds that that we we have this we have freedom of choice basically, and we have the choice of to value or not to value, and to live or not to live, and to think mm-hmm. or not to think. And so it is conceivable that you could choose death as your value, in which case property would serve you really no in, no interest at all, because property right. is, a, is a right that protects your fundamental choice to live. But if you do choose to live, you have to live as a human being. You don't really have a choice about that. And to live as a human being requires private property, at, at, at the very least, for food, shelter, and clothing, like you say. Yeah, exactly. And then all of those other awesome things like wedding rings as well. So, um, so it, Going from the value of property, now we have a federal constitution that does provide protection for the right to property. I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about that and, in particular, whether you think the constitution provides us enough protection. Well, it, that's a hard question to answer because the question is really, do, is it being faithfully enforced in order to, to that that people are following the promise that it makes? I, you know, there's um. Uh, some great classic legal philosophers, uh, H.L.A. Hart and Lon Fuller, who had this fa- very famous debate over the nature of law. And they actually agreed more than they disagreed. They agreed on one basic proposition that's really crucially important, and that is law is not a command. Law is basically a promise. Uh, when we think about law, it's easy to think that law just means that the government tells you to do something or that the people with the the power tell you to do something. And law doesn't do that. Law is a promise that is basically reciprocal between the, the ruler and the ruled. And this is a point that Fuller in particular makes clear in his masterpiece book, The Morality of Law. And one of the things that the Constitution promises to do is to protect our right to private property, and it promises it actually very thoroughly. Property rights are mentioned more than any other right in the Constitution of the United States, and it promises that our property will not be taken without just compensation. It promises that it won't be taken away for the private use of other people. It promises us that it won't be taken away without due process of law. It promises security in our homes, among our our possessions and our uh, papers, and Pretty much all of these promises have been broken to some extent or another and are systematically being broken to this day, thanks largely to bad legal precedent that dates primarily from the 1930s. Uh, the Supreme Court in the, in the 1930s, and, and particularly in a 1934 case called Nebbia versus New York, 
created basically a new rule of constitutional law that says if the government wants to control private property, take away your economic freedom, etc., it can do so basically whenever the politicians think doing so is a good idea. And right. that's, that theory is called the rational basis test. And mm-hmm. the Kelo decision, for example, is an implementation of this rational basis test. The, the court says, well, if the, if the elected officials thought it was a good idea to take away your property and give it to somebody else, we're not going to interfere with that. We're going to stand back and let that happen. Rational basis. And that's really the big sellout and the reason why the constitutional promise is being broken. I'm, I'm often challenged on this point. People say, well, the Constitution has obviously failed because – Either it authorizes this, the current situation, in which case it's immoral, or it has failed to protect us from the current situation, in which case it is, it is a weak failure. And I think that's a false dichotomy, pretty obviously, because if a drunk man swears that he's never going to touch another drop of alcohol or not, and then he falls off the wagon, is it the fault of the oath that he took? Of course not. It's his fault for failing to follow the promise that he made to himself. And that's, that's what's going on in the country today. The, the Constitution provides quite clear protections and safeguards for private property, and elected officials and judges have failed to abide by that promise. What about the fact that the Fifth Amendment does allow for eminent domain in some circumstances, though? Does that bother you? It does bother me, and I don't know the really the right workable answer to this question. The okay. best that I've been able to come up with as a, as a really moral justification for eminent domain is that you can liken it to a kind of self-defense in some cases. So the common law, the common law tort theory has always been that if you if you're a, a, a out walking in the woods and it start there's a terrible snowstorm and you're going to freeze to death and and you're looking for some kind of shelter and you stumble across somebody's cabin and they're not home and their cabin is locked, you are allowed under the law to break into the cabin for shelter mm-hmm. as long as you pay the owner compensation for anything you damage. Well, by using that analogy, you could say that maybe there are some circumstances where the state is under such threat that it needs to use it needs to rec- use the same kind of emergency authority to take somebody's property. So, in a, in, a, in the threat of, a, of of an invasion, for instance, or the threat of a, a terrible fire in the city, and you have to make fire breaks. These are the classic examples in the law. Then it's okay for the government to take people's property as long as it justly compensates them. I think that's the best justification that I can come up with for eminent domain, but I. You know, the law has always been uncomfortable with the idea of eminent domain ever since the 17th century, and the best justification that people have been able to give is, well, you get just compensation, even knowing that it's never really just compensation. So, yes, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of eminent domain at all, and certainly the current law that says the government can condemn private property basically whenever elected officials think doing so is a good idea, that's obviously Mm -hmm. wrong, clearly wrong. Exactly. Another thing that people point to is that perhaps it's a mistake in the Declaration of Independence not to list among our unalienable rights property. You know, we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Property isn't in there. You explain that in your book, but do you think it would have been better if property had been listed there? Would it have helped? Well, there's some theories about why Jefferson left out property. One of them, one of the interesting theories is maybe he left it out because he was afraid people would use it to justify slavery. And it's true that in the initial draft of the, Constitu- of the Declaration of Independence, he had a, a very eloquent denunciation of slavery that was edited out before it was approved. 
I suspect, though, that he didn't do it for that reason. I suspect that he just thought that it's the phrase sounded better, uh, you know, with the uh, with the phrasing that he used, and because he, he was he was a wise enough writer to to have a good ear for a clever sa- uh, sentence, and he was basing his writing largely on the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which had been uh, published only about a month earlier, and I actually prefer myself. For just the reason you said, I prefer the language of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. It says, um, I have it here, it says, all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Now, you can mm-hmm. see how Jefferson would shorten that to the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, he's, he's right about that, and we use property to pursue our happiness. One right. way of thinking about Jefferson's phrasing is that it's kind of uh, – a to- it's the same individual right seen from different time dimensions. There's a professor in uh, Hawaii named Ken Schooland who pointed this out to me, that you can think of the, the three rights mentioned in the Declaration of Independence as your right – to, to be yourself, to own yourself, as seen from the past, present, and the future. Your right to life is your right to your current existence. Your right to liberty is your right to the future, your right to act with yourself in the future. And your right to property, your right to um, your, the, the, the things that you've acquired, that's the past that you've gone through, that you've used your liberty for to acquire. So you can see these things as essentially the same right seen from different dimensions. Okay. And what what the Virginia Declaration of Rights, I think, makes very clear that the acquiring and possessing of property is for the purpose of pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. So I I don't think that Jefferson is to to blame for removing property. He certainly did not mean to denigrate the importance of property rights, which he held to be crucial and, and essential. Right, right. I, mean, I just know that maybe a number of concrete-bound people will look at that list and say, okay, well, you know, property is not there. Yes, it's true that in order oh, to pursue a life of human happiness, you, you need property. But um, so that, is, that is a very common malady in the legal profession, people who think in just that way. There's, a, in fact, a, probably the majority of constitutional law professors in this country think exactly that way, that it, if it's not written down here, it's not a right. And that's really shocking when you think that when you think about the fact that the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution expressly says that that is the wrong way to read the Constitution. Exactly. It expressly says that the fact that the rights aren't written down here does not mean that it's not a right. You, sure, you don't. It doesn't say here that you have the right to bu- run barefoot through sprinklers on a hot summer day. That doesn't mean that you don't have that right. And that's what the Ninth Amendment says. And yet, most lawyers on both sides of the political spectrum today. Ignore that, and they think if it's not written down there, it's not a right. Right. I mean, didn't Barnett write a book, something, you know, The Forgotten Ninth? Exactly. Yeah, so um, it definitely needs to be revived. Now, you know, talking about how the Constitution does provide this protection, you've talked a little bit about how that's been eroded by the court, in particular Supreme Court. How have, in the various ways, governments attacked property rights, failing to provide the protection that the Constitution promises. We've talked some about these regulatory takings. You've talked a little bit about eminent domain. Can you talk some about what's happened in the realm of eminent domain since Kelo? 
Well, sadly, things have not gotten much better. It's been more than 10 years since the Kelo case was decided. Mm -hmm. And people might remember that the Kelo decision itself says if states want to prevent this from happening, they can. And that's true. Most eminent domain cases, by far the majority of eminent domain cases, take place at the state or local level. It's rarely the the federal government doing it. And so some states, a lot of states, passed laws in the years after Kelo that were supposedly to protect us against eminent domain abuse. But in fact, uh, almost all of them were meaningless window dressing that did nothing to protect individual rights. Probably the worst of all is California, of course, which passed Mm -hmm. uh, Proposition 99, which not only doesn't protect people against eminent domain, but actually worsens the situation. It's the only state to have expanded its eminent domain power by ballot initiative in the wake of of, of Kilo. Um, And the reason why it does that is because Proposition 99 only applies to owner-occupied homes. Mm. Now, homes are almost never taken through eminent domain for these redevelopment projects. uh, Redevelopment takes place in industrial areas, so it's small businesses that are the most common victim of eminent domain. And it only applies to owner-occupied homes, so people living in apartment buildings or rented property, uh, I guess it just sucks to be them. And then it, even those protections don't apply if the project at issue is a public-private partnership. And what does that mean? Well, you know, I, not far from where I grew up, there's a shopping mall called Victoria Gardens, which you know it's just an ordinary shopping mall like every other shopping mall. It's got a you know Barnes and Noble and a Victoria's Secret and so forth. But it also has a little police station. And it has a little community center that you can rent out for your club meetings. And it has these plaques on the walls that tell you the history of all the things that they tore down to build them all. Mm. And that makes it a public-private partnership. So even owner-occupied homes could have been condemned through eminent domain for that project. So Prop 99 really does nothing. And the reason it actually worsens things is because for the first time in California history, it actually added redevelopment eminent domain projects, it added that to the state constitution. That had not been in the state constitution before. So that makes it actually worse than it was. Now, the only two states that did something good in the wake of Kilo were Florida, which actually abolished eminent domain for blight. That that was pretty good. And then Arizona, which passed an even stronger protection that prohibits these kinds of Kilo-style takings and also requires the government to compensate people when it passes regulations that deprive them of the right to use their property. It's called the Arizona Private Property Rights Protection Act. Right. And it it actually, you know, when it was passed, everybody, all the government of people, all the local government people in the, the League of Cities and all the usual, they were screaming, oh my, this is the end of the world. It's going to be the, the, the Arizona is going to collapse into mass chaos, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria and so forth. <laughs> and of, surprise, surprise, 10 years later, Arizona is still here, uh, most of it anyway. Uh, there haven't been any uh, riots that I've seen, but um, – in fact, there also have not been many lawsuits under the Property Rights Protection Act. And the reason why is because most of the time what happens is the government officials say, well, gosh, if we did this thing that we're thinking of doing, it would take away these people's property rights and we would have to compensate them. So we better not do that thing. Well, you know, one of, we one call of that a win. Things, oh, no, that is a win. That's perfect. I was going to say one of those horrifying things that you were talking about in, in the book that I saw was – um, Supreme Court Justice, I forget which one, saying, well, it can't be the case that we have to pay for these regulatory takings because basically government can't afford 
to pay for all the things that it wants to control right. and regulate. It just it can't I, afford it, so therefore they don't have to. Sometimes it blows your mind that they admit these things. <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's hard to believe it's not an April Fool's prank that, that, that a lot of the time lawyers on the other side, and that's most lawyers by far, um, because the legal profession is overwhelmingly opposed to the idea of private property rights. Uh, most lawyers, they, 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 many lawyers are willing to come right out and say, well, we, we can't afford it, so therefore we shouldn't have to pay. It's, uh, well, by that theory, I mean, I guess I can just take anything that I want. Right? It's amazing. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to say that, the, that because Arizona's law has worked so well in reining in the abuses, and you know, actually not long ago, my wife, who's also an attorney with the Goldwater Institute, was speaking on a panel, and one, uh, a, a very prominent government lawyer was, was on the panel, and he said, well, gosh, this Property Ownership uh, right, uh, Act, this, this Property Protection Act, has, has caused a chilling effect for government regulation in Arizona. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, in the desert, we like chilling effects. That's, that's, right. that's, a, that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> so the Goldwater Institute has developed a revised version of this law because there were some technical problems like statute limitations, stuff like that. Um, and we have we created a second version that we call the Property Ownership Fairness Act that we have announced just last month. And we're trying to get this law passed in legislatures in other states. We've targeted a number of other states that we're hoping to, to get this legislation passed at the state level to protect people against the abuse of their property rights. Not uh, not California by chance, I guess not, right? You you know, I'm suspecting that that would not be the most receptive receptive place to. Uh, <laughs> I know, I right. know, but I just we need some good news here. We just got a fifteen dollar minimum wage passed, and as you're yeah. saying, you know, we had uh, what was it Prop 99 in California that does horrible stuff to us, among other things. So I was hoping that you'd send us a little love or something, but no. I I must say I you know I'm I'm a native Californian and I, uh, except for two years when I was in college I lived in California all my life until 2014, and to finally just say I I can't I I have to get out I, I the the state is headed in such a bad direction that and it and it is absolutely refusing to listen to the people who are warning what is going to happen to the state of California, I it's just. I, I can't. I couldn't take it anymore. It's. It, it's. Consider, for example, the high-speed rail project, so-called high-speed rail project, or as I like to call it, the Brown Doggle. That <laughs> where where Governor Brown is devoting. Not ju- we're not just talking a lot of money here. This railroad, this choo-choo train, will cost the GDP of New Mexico. You could have New Mexico. Or you could have this train, which is not a high-speed train, which even if it were a high-speed train would take longer than an airplane take, uh, ride and cost more. And mm. this is the wave of the future. If California, Californians refuse to lo- learn from history, since 1850 at least, California has been, has been exploited and abused by railroad projects. <laughs> I mean right. that's, that's why California has the constitution it has is because the railroads were such a problem with the government handouts and the, the boondoggles that were going on, and here we go again. So, yeah, I'm, I must say I'm pretty pessimistic about California's future. Let me just ask you one question. What does a gallon of premium, you know, your highest octane gasoline cost in Arizona right now? <laughs> Right now, I think it's about two twenty-five. Yeah, so ours is about three fifteen. I think last time I right. checked, and that's gas all in California costs. California. The, yeah, that's right. That's right. It, the cal, de, can, gas in California costs the same price as it does in Hawaii. 
except that in Hawaii, it's the cost that of having to be shipped out there. That's the right. that's why it costs right. more. Whereas in California, it's all taxes. Yeah, no, it, it is it is truly truly ridiculous. So we have talked some about eminent domain. We've talked some about regulatory takings in general. How do you see the state of regulatory takings nationwide? Pretty dismal, yes. It is pretty dismal. Uh, f- uh, the federal precedent is really bad, and it was the federal precedent was slightly improving over the past couple years or so, um, thanks to Justice Scalia, because he w- he provided the fifth vote on some crucial property protection decisions. And with his demise, I'm afraid that uh, to see what will happen in the future. I think. Um, Obviously, a Supreme Court appointment by either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump would be a disaster, mm-hmm. and the and so probably what the the uh, Senate is best the Senate Republicans are best suited to do right now is to hold on and see what happens at the convention, and if it ends up that Trump is the nominee, to go ahead and confirm Garland the nominee right now. Um, okay. But because he'll be better than either of the other two candidates, whatever name. But even so. That will provide the fifth vote for a, the, a liberal majority that will very likely undo the few protections for property rights that the Supreme Court has imposed in recent years. Now, that's not necessarily the death knell because then you try to just increase the protections at the state level. It just means that the federal government right. is not going to protect as much. So, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the Supreme Court can't you know, themselves take away your rights. They can just uphold the taking away of the rights by other evil people, right? So, right. Um, so we've okay. So we've got uh, eminent domain. We've got regulatory takings. There's one type which I think is a subset of regulatory takings, if I understand it right. You call it exactions. Is that right? Yes. Now I mentioned earlier how the government can require you to give something to it in exchange for a permit, and. The, that's that's what these exactions are. It's when the government says, well, you, you we'll give you permission to do this thing, but in exchange for that, you have to give us a little something in return. Now, the limits are that the government can do that if what it's doing is remedying some problem that you cause. So mm-hmm. I gave the example of pollution, for example, or if you were to build – Say you're a developer and you want to build 100 new homes in a neighborhood. Well, that's going to increase the use of the roads. And the government can come to you and say, well, look, because there's going to be so much increased use of the roads because of your your housing development, we're going to say that we'll give you a permit but only in exchange for the money necessary to build a new road. And the Constitution allows that. The problem occurs when the government says, well, if you want a permit to do this thing, you have to give us a, a you know, a bunch of cash or pay for something that the government owns that's totally unrelated or something like that. And that happens very often in, in this country. Very often officials with the permitting agencies see this as an opportunity to get what they want, and developers are usually afraid to challenge it. Right, right. Um, then another area that you talk about is so-called civil asset forfeiture. But what I've seen a little bit from the Institute for Justice, which is doing a lot of work in this area, that things are actually improving in that area. Am I right or not? Well, so it's hard to say. I don't think that they're improving very much. There's some slight improvement, but there has also been a setback. Uh, Just some months ago, the Obama administration announced that it was halting a program which um, it's what happens is the federal government will share the funds from seized property with the local police department. 
And Maybe under we asset should, uh, forfeiture, we should back up for a second. Yeah, I was going to say we should explain what civil asset forfeiture is for people who aren't necessarily familiar with it. Yeah, so a civil asset forfeiture is a process where the government can take away property from people on the theory that it has been involved in a crime somehow, mm-hmm. but it does not require that the government convict or even charge the person with a crime before taking the property. Instead, the legal theory is that the, the, the property itself is the defendant, and that's why you get these weird case names like yeah. United States versus $565,000 in cash, yeah. something like that. Right. And, because, and so that means that the government doesn't have to prove guilt. And so often what you find is police departments will seize somebody's property on the suspicion that they've committed a crime and then sit there and wait. And if the person comes and demands their property back, they have to sue to get their property back. And to do that, they're the plaintiff, and that means that they have to waive their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And that is very often a hurdle people are unwilling to jump over because that's a very dangerous thing to do. And so the and what happens then is that the police gets to keep the police departments get to keep what they seize. They get to keep the cash, keep the boats or or trucks or planes that they claim were used in usually drug crimes, but it can often Mm -hmm. be things even where the person had no idea it was being used for that. The most infamous example of that is a case from Michigan called Michigan versus Dennis where the husband used the wife's car to go drive down the road and solicit a prostitute, and mm. the government seized the car. And obviously that was not done with the wife's consent. Yeah. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court said it was okay to take, that, to take the car away. So we at the Goldwater Institute, as well as, the, as well as IJ, have been trying to get some reforms done both here in Arizona and nationwide. One of the reasons this goes on is because of these federal programs where they share the benefits. The, the local and federal police agencies will share the proceeds of these seizures. So the FBI will help the local police department to run a sting operation or something and seize this property, and then they'll share the proceeds 50-50 or something like that. And that, was, that program was halted some months ago, and we were very hopeful that that meant there was reform coming. Unfortunately, just a few days ago, it was announced that the administration is going to restart the, the program. So Oh we're kind well, of, you know, they you know, they need money. They they gotta pay the person who hacked all of our iPhones. Right. <laughs> right. Steep fees for that, you know, really crack hacker that they got out there. Right. I, that that's that's really discouraging. Um, we did also talk some about the laws based in so-called ecology, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act. In the book, you talk at some length about the evils of the California Coastal Commission in the name of ecology. Did you want to kind of add insult to injury to us Californians and talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Well, you know, the California Coastal Commission is probably the most aggressively anti-property rights state agency that there is. Um, it, It was created in the 70s. Uh, There was a brainchild of a man named Peter Douglas, who just recently died, who, with the exception of a very small amount of time, was the executive director of the agency throughout its entire existence. And Douglas was quite outspoken that he was opposed to the idea of property rights. He he was proud of calling himself a social engineer. And the way that he used the law and the way the Coastal Commission works is any development in or near the coast of California requires 
permission from the Coastal Commission, and of course they usually reject that kind of permission, or they require some kind of a payoff, like I was saying, an exaction in exchange for that permission, that sort of thing. And they de they define development so broadly that it applies to an astonishing number of things. My favorite example of that is there was a fireworks show, July 4th fireworks show in the quaint little seaside town of Wallala, which the Coastal Commission said that was development because a, a fireworks display uses the the area and and produces some smoke when the fireworks go off. Well, by that oh theory, it is literally true that walking down the beach breathing is development <laughs> under the California Coastal Act, and the California Supreme Court allowed that to stay. So that is currently the law in California. Oh, that is what I would call revulsifying, so that's terrible. Um, the other thing that you talk about in, in the book are the procedural roadblocks, and you gave the one example, the so-called Williamson County trap that says that you have to go to the state court first before you can even be in federal court when you're challenging these horrible types of takings, whether you know eminent domain regulatory or, or otherwise. So that's terrible news as well. How do we get out of this problem and what what's the hope for the future of property rights well it has to start with education and with uh social and philosophical change i mean mm -hmm. it, this isn't something that can be fixed overnight uh, rome wasn't burned in a day and yeah. and um, uh, what has happened is uh, the philosophical corruption that reaches quite deep i don't mean like pol ordinary political corruption i mean the corruption of america's constitutional ideals runs down to the core and it's been it's been done over many decades m largely by the progressive revolution in the very early 20th century on which the new deal cashed in on which the great society capitalized and so forth so it requires a dramatic um, uh, soul-searching on the part of Americans. Now, I'm glad to say that I think that that process is already beginning, including in the legal profession. And that's saying quite a lot, because it was the legal profession that was largely responsible for this destruction. But right. it's And it's not just property rights I'm talking about. I mean, the idea that property rights are permissions that are given to you by the government, that idea is pervasive in the legal profession and among lawyers and politicians in this country. But the idea that the principles of the Declaration of Independence that underlie the Constitution, the idea that those are untrue, the idea that you have any rights at all, the idea that of the principle of equality, the principle of, uh, of individual freedom, these principles have been corrupted by an ideology that teaches you that, first of all, it, race and class are the most important considerations, that the mm -hmm. Declaration of Independence was not really written for all humans but only for white men, that America's constitutional system is is institutionally corrupted, that the, the role of the government is to steal from those who earn and give to those who do not. I mean these principles mm -hmm. are so deeply ingrained, they need to be overthrown and questioned before we can really hope for lasting change at the political and legal level. But I think that we are I think we are making progress in that direction. I'm very I'm I'm gratified to see how many young lawyers really see these issues and care about them and want to change them, really care about property rights and, and economic freedom and, and institutions like the Goldwater Institute, like the Institute for mm -hmm. Justice, like Pacific Legal Foundation, that really are making important strides in the courts. But that has to be part of this complete breakfast. I mean, it, that it can't just be lawyers, it can't just be political people, it can't just be policy people. We all have to work together to, to really challenge the philosophical foundation of the regulatory welfare state.
Right. And that's one of the things that I like that your book ended with the saying that the most important thing is to make what, and you quoted, I believe it was, was it Jefferson, Frequent Recurrence to Fundamental Principles? Um, that's actually from or, the Virginia Declaration of Rights that I mentioned before. Right. That we must make recurrence to these principles, that people need to actually understand the principles as a first step. But it seems like that you're able to achieve some change in the right direction, even without the total culture you know, achieving this fundamental understanding or this revolution in understanding. So I, I like the idea that you have sort of a hybrid mission of both education and activism and legal action, which is which is nice. And it probably that, that gives is you crucial. satisfaction. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely essential to to I I see the litigation that I do as an attorney as the first step in the process. And the the final product is when I stand up in front of, you know, the local rotary club or whatever and I say to them, "Here's what the law says. The government is allowed to steal your property and give it to somebody else because it thinks that it'll increase property taxes. The government is allowed to regulate away the value of your property and not pay you for it. The government can take away your property because it accuses it of having been involved than a crime, and you don't get a trial. Though people are shocked when they find out about that, and then you can talk to them about why property rights are important in in protecting and and fulfilling human lives. So we that's why one of our mottos at, at the Goldwater Institute is that our job is to help people live freer and happier lives. That's our goal, and that requires a philosophical as well as a legal approach. I I really do like it a lot. Let's talk about a very important case that you've been working on recently, which is the case involving Lexi Page in California under the Indian Child Welfare Act. I I think that you are also working on a parallel case in Arizona. Is that right? That's right. So this is a, the case. It's been in the headlines a lot lately in California about a, a six-year-old girl who was with a foster family for four years until the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma intervened and, and required her to be taken from the foster family with whom she's lived for two-thirds of her life and sent to live with her step-grandfather in Utah because her great-great-great-great-grandparent was a full-blooded Choctaw Indian. And it's this is done under a federal law called the Indian Child Welfare Act passed in the 1970s that says that if a child is eligible for membership in an Indian tribe, a whole different set of rules apply to the custody and foster care proceedings for that child. Every other child in the country, if there's a foster care or an adoption proceeding or something, the court is supposed to think about the best interests of the child. That's the test that applies. Right. But when it comes to these Indian children, the court is supposed to disregard that and is supposed to presume that it is in the best interest of the child to place them. And there's actually a list in the law that says, you know, first to, to place them with an Indian family on a reservation or to place them with Indian close relatives and that this sort of thing. It lists these factors that the court is required to presume, and it can't deviate from those guidelines except in rare circumstances. And what that means is that children who are subject to this law actually suffer under separate and unequal system of rules. This is not something like affirmative action or a race preference or something. This is a separate and substandard set of rules that applies to these right. kids because, simply because of their ancestry and deprives them of the protections that every other race of child receives. So, that, for example, there's a federal law called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act that makes it illegal to deny or delay an adoption proceeding on the basis of race, but there's a specific exception in that law that says children subject to the Indian Child Welfare Act 
do not enjoy that protection. They're the only children whom it is legal to deny or, despair, uh, to, or delay a, um, an adoption proceeding solely because of their race. And right. we have challenged that, that law in a federal civil rights lawsuit here in Arizona. And that case is still – we're waiting on the judge to decide on, on the motion to dismiss right now. And meanwhile, this case in California has occurred where, again, Lexi's – she's 164th Choctaw. Her great, 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 great grandparent was a Choctaw <sighs> Indian. And therefore, the, the tribe – another one of the, the provisions in the statute says that the tribe has the power to intervene in an adoption or foster care proceeding anywhere in the country that involves an, a child of Indian ancestry. So that that's why the fate of a child in California can be decided by a tribe in Oklahoma, and she can be sent to Utah, not even, by the way, to live with an Indian family. Her She's being right. sent to live with the the husband of her late grandmother, who was some a descendant of an of a full-blooded Indian and that so it's it's really a shocking and heinous system of rules that 50 years after Brown versus Board of Education we still have a rule on the books that subjects children to different treatment solely on the basis of their of their racial ancestry yeah and again it, the racial ancestry comes in because it's the racial ancestry that is almost invariably used as criteria for eligibility of membership in these tribes right so that's right, how it that's becomes right discrimination on the on the basis of race. Um, so yes. this is one one provision of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Is there anything good at all about the Indian Child Welfare Act more generally or should the whole thing be scrapped? Well, the the there it has a lot of provisions and yes, some of them are do protect uh, Indian children and it was you know, I actually think this law was kind of an uh, of a it was an overreaction, but it had good intentions because what had happened was in the years before the act was passed, the federal government had a policy of trying to remove Indian children from their families and place them with other families. Mm. And this led to a lot of disruption and, and trouble for, for these children, and, and it was a real problem. And so the response to that was, well, what we need is a law that will protect these children. The problem was that the, what, what resulted is a law that doesn't protect the children. It protects the tribes, and those two things are very different things. It, it provides an unequal set of rules for the children because it says that the tribe can intervene and take these children away from loving foster parents, can deprive right. them of a permanent adoptive home solely because of their race, and assign them to other people. And, and you know, we have a website, uh, equalprotection.org, where we cover this issue in depth, and we have a really shocking in-depth investigational report that, that one of my colleagues here did that shows how some, in many cases these children are, are neglected and abused by, their, by the Indian families they're assigned to. In some cases, they've even been killed um, <sighs> as a result of being taken from these families under the Indian Child Welfare Act. So it really is shocking that, that literally one drop of blood that was the old standard, and that still is the standard. One drop of blood is enough to subject a child who you know, is an American citizen to separate and unequal rules. And I want to emphasize that, by the way, because it's very easy when we talk about Indian children to think of them as children of some foreign government, and that's not what we're talking about. All Indian children are citizens of the United States and are right. entitled to equal protection under the Constitution. Right, exactly. I mean, it is horrific. I can't even imagine the horror of oh, having a child whom you cared for and loved for four years be ripped from you and potentially be in danger while you're trying to go through these legal proceedings. What do you think? I mean, you know, you have 
an amicus brief that you filed with the Supreme Court urging them to consider this as, as soon as possible. And I've put a link to that, by the way. I've got a website, don'tletitgo.com, where I put program notes, and I've got a link to a bunch of your, your stuff there, uh, Tim. But what do you think the prospects for success are with the Supreme Court on this? Unfortunately, what happened was the uh, the foster family asked the California Supreme Court to expedite the case and, and hear it right away, and we just learned that the California Supreme Court has denied that motion and has Aye. has chosen not to take up the case. Now that doesn't mean it's the end of the case, because but it does yeah. mean that they're going to have to go through the ordinary appeal process to the California Court of Appeal and then to the California Supreme Court and then to the United States Supreme Court, and that can take a very long time. And when we're talking about a six-year-old child, I mean. Every a year is an eternity in the life of, of a child that young. I mean, you remember when you were a kid, Christmas seemed like it would be forever. I can't wait for Christmas because you know that's, right. that, that's a fifth of your entire life. You know, and and so when we're talking about a child who's that young, you're talking about basically an eternity. So unfortunately, the the this, the court's decision not to take the case on an emergency basis is is really bad news. Our lawsuit that we're doing in the federal court, um, what we've asked the court to certify it as a class action to apply to all children in Arizona who are subject to this law. But mm-hmm. right now, that that issue is being held back right now because the the government has moved to dismiss our case. And so the judge wants to decide that first before he decides whether to certify it as a class action. And, you know, one way or the other, we'll, we will go as far as we can. Get, we have to get this issue to the Supreme Court. I think there is hope there because the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case a couple of years ago called Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. And in that mm-hmm. case, there they, it wasn't really on this issue, but there were, at the end they had they said this thing. They said, you know, if this law were ever used in a way at the 11th hour to seize a child – Mm-hmm. Uh, and and move her out of foster care custody solely on the because some distant ancestor was an Indian that would be that would raise serious concerns under the constitution well that's the lexi case that's clearly what that is and one right. way or the other this issue has got to get to the supreme court and they have to address it. it's it's it is absolutely unconscionable that we continue to have a law that not only treats people differently on the basis of their race but is an, again another injury inflicted upon the american indian in this country it's that's that's the issue that people really have to pay attention to no matter what the intentions behind the law might have been, this is not a law that benefits Indian children. This is a law that hurts Indian children solely because they're Indians, and it, that cannot right. be allowed to stand. Yeah, because because if the removal from a foster home and a placement with you know some relatives who are actually Indian, if that is truly in the best interest of that child, then that would come out in the wash if you use the best interest in the child standard. But in this case, they are not using that standard. They're doing it only based on some sort of, in this case, very tenuous link to the tribe, right? That's right. And actually, this this has kind of a connection to what we were talking about earlier about property rights, because you know the the status the status of the American Indian is really shocking. The statistics are really upsetting and horrifying. You know the Indians are a very small portion of this uh, of the population of the United States, about 1.7 percent or so, and the poverty levels, the the education levels, the the illness levels, the 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 second leading cause of death for American Indian men in this country is suicide. The situation is horrible, and the, one of the main reasons for that is the lack of economic opportunity and stability on Indian reservations. And the cause of that is Indians can't own property. 
There are mm. only three kinds of people in the United States who can't own property, children, the insane, and the American Indian. And the reason for that is because various laws restrict property ownership on Indian reservations. The, the government says, well, this property belongs to the federal government in trust for the tribes. So I see my, you are going to hold my property for me and give it to me when you think that I deserve it. That's, that's, not, that's not freedom or rules that say that the tribe as a whole owns the property and so no individual can. Well, what that really means is you can't get a mortgage. Right. If the bank right. can't foreclose on the property because the bank's not allowed to own the property, then you're not going to get a mortgage. And if you can't get a mortgage, you can't raise capital. And if you can't raise capital, you can't start a small business. And so what we see is a cycle of poverty on these reservations that is caused in large part by laws that prohibit Indians from owning property. And there's various reasons for that. One of them is the absurd romanticism of the American Indian that has taught people the nonsense, the historical foolishness that Indians never had property, property rights and that property right. rights are just a, a part of white culture that's been, in, been foisted on Indians. And the, this is Walt Disney quality nonsense. This is, and yet even many Indians themselves believe this idea. The fact is Indians are like the rest of us. Some of them are smart, some of them are dumb, some of them are hardworking, some of them are lazy, and they, they have private property rights, they believe in property rights, and they want to pursue happiness, and they have every right to pursue happiness under our Constitution. And our laws right. prohibit that from happening in large part because of this romanticism. There, the environmental issue is this very similar thing, this notion that Indians lived at one with nature, and so we can't possibly exploit the natural resources on Indian reservations, when in fact reservation land includes some of the, the wealthiest deposits of natural resources in this country. And if the Indians could use that, those resources, they could improve the lives of their people. But this, this uh, environmentalist gospel makes it impossible for them to do so. And there's, I mean, there are rules that were put into place to prohibit Indians from owning land because they were selling the lands to white people. Well, oh, they have no. the right to sell the yeah. land to white of people course. if they want to. Otherwise, it's not a property right. And by prohibiting them from doing that, what ends up happening is – this is something you might be able to sympathize with this more than, more than I, actually – that the idea that putting somebody on a pedestal is a way of taking away their freedom is something that women, I think, can particularly understand because that was what was done to women 100 years ago. It was the idea that, well, women are such shy, retiring, beautiful, graceful little violets. They couldn't possibly dirty themselves with things like you know, voting, right? And that's, right. that's very similar to what's been done to the American Indian in this country. We've, we have created this Rousseauian noble savage myth and foisted it upon Indians in a way that takes away their ability and their freedom to pursue happiness as they're entitled to under our flag. Yes. No, and it, I mean, it is just inexcusable, and it does. It seems like something that would be an April Fool's joke like we were talking about earlier because it, it's so unbelievable. Uh, there is a section where you debunk this myth in the book as well. So I do highly recommend people reading this book, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America. Is there going to be an audible version of the updated book? Unfortunately, so far the publisher has said no. I would really like that to happen. There is an there is an audio version of the first edition from ten years right. ago, but unfortunately, the new version is completely rewritten. So yes. I would urge listeners who would like there to be an audio version of the book to please write to the Cato Institute and ask them to to okay an audio version of this book because I I think that would be really valuable. I do I do as well. Me as a 
California commuter suffering in yet another way <laughs> at the uh, behest of, of the California government. Let me talk to you, if you still have a few more minutes, to about sure. one more issue. And it's one that actually the California government is threatening to do something horrible about, but generally it's been an issue nationwide. And it's the issue of telephone encryption, iPhone encryption. I understand that California is actually threatening to outlaw the sale of phones that are encrypted in such a way that the manufacturer, for example, Apple, cannot gain access to the phone. And as you and I know, a large value of the iPhone that I'm holding in my hand right now and that the NSA is you know, watching me through, hello NSA, um, the, a large part of this value the fact that Apple itself cannot access certain aspects of the data that I've got on this phone. That's, you know, business goodwill. I mean, first of all, wouldn't this be a horrible regulatory taking on Apple if they passed this law? Boy, that's an interesting idea. I, I hadn't thought of that. I, I do think that you could make that argument, and I also think that you could, you know, that, that sort of thing, if it's a national security concern, that's what eminent domain is supposed to be for. Right. If the if Apple take the San Bernardino iPhone case, for example, if the federal government really thought that this was a crucial national security issue, it could easily use eminent domain to condemn everything Apple owns, including all of its intellectual property, everything about it. Every single asset of Apple could be condemned through eminent domain if the government pays just compensation because that's for public use. That's why there is such a thing as eminent domain. So if the, if the government were to come in and, and, and pass a rule saying, no, you can't use your property in this way, Apple, you're not allowed to design this, I think you could make the argument that that's a regulation that's basically doing the same thing, taking away private property for public use and owes compensation to Apple. I, I, that seems a plausible argument to me, but I, but- I haven't really thought about it in depth. As, you know, just as a normative matter, do you think that Apple should be able to sell devices to us that are encrypted such a way that only we can gain access to the devices and so that the government would have to present us with the warrant in order to get access to what we have on our phones? I see. I, I think it's perfectly morally right for, for Apple to be able to sell Anything that it wants to to people who are willing to buy it, I see. Uh, yeah, of course they should. Um, I, you know, I, I you're right that that's one of the values of the iPhone, and that we've used so we put so much of our personal information on these phones that this is mm-hmm. an issue that that has, can't be ignored. And I don't see any point in outlawing it. It's not going to work to outlaw this stuff. If there's one thing prohibition has taught us, it's that that never works. So I I don't see the I don't see what value there would be in doing that anyway. What what if the if if intelligence agencies need access to these phones, banning the encrypted phones is not going to help them get the access. It's just going to drive the the encryption further underground and be counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Supreme Court has recognized that in many ways the information that we have in our phone is more extensive, more personal than what they could learn by walking through our homes, right? Right. So I don't see, you know, basically what this is, it's the equivalent to someone having a home to which they alone have the key, and the government agent just has to come and present you with a warrant. The fact that this guy Farouk was dead and they couldn't get him to open it with his passcode anymore or whatever. Yeah, you're out of luck in cases like that. But all of us are using these phones for peaceful purposes. They're tremendous value to us. I think we should have a right to have them. 
And I don't know that there would be a national security risk in merely selling this product to us. You know, that's right. where I'd wonder right. if um, – I mean, On the contrary, if... it would be – I think it would be riskier to outlaw the sale of the product and thereby drive the development into secrecy because people you – know, the scientists and, the, and the, the cryptologists who design these products would then have to do their work in secret, whereas if you keep it available on the open market, it allows for – at the very least, it allows for hackers to figure out how to use it if you if the government needs to hire them or something, and it allows a, an open uh, discussion of the pluses and minuses of the kind of their of their capacities, what they can and cannot do, and that sort of thing. So we're actually safer, I think, by allowing the sale of these products anyway. Right, right. I'm I'm really hoping that these remain legal in the state of California and ev everywhere else. I know that some tech companies have gone overseas. They've actually moved operations overseas in anticipation of these types of devices being outlawed, which is a really sad. Which is also a danger, right? Because then you have encryption companies, go, the, the world's best encryption geniuses, going to foreign and possibly hostile governments. Right, right. And maybe at the mercy of those governments and then being used against us, how some people think that Snowden might be being used against us as we speak. Who, you know, who knows what Russia could be threatening him with over there. So um, in terms of the current Apple versus FBI, we've seen that the government has dropped the case because FBI, we are told, was able to gain access to Farouk's phone independently. Um, do you think they dropped the case simply because they got the access, or do you think that the government was concerned that they would lose? Because I understand that the government did lose in a similar case in New York. Yeah, I, it's it's hard to say. I was I was quite actually pretty surprised. I would have thought that they would have you know proceeded with the case on on or tried to proceed with the case on some theory or other because I think they were very likely to win. Um, but the and it, the the critics were absolutely right that this is an issue that's not going away anytime soon. If the if the FBI can do this in this case, then it's going to want to do it in every case. And so right. I, I was quite I was actually pretty surprised that they did, that the uh, government didn't try to keep find some way to keep this issue in court one way or the other. But it, it must have been some strategic choice, but like that on their part. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I did hear that the FBI has already assisted local authorities in. I'm, I'm trying to remember which state. It might have been Alabama where a homicide was committed, and they opened a phone in that case. So do you see right. the FBI going around and just opening all of these phones? I mean, I guess in each of these cases right now they're going to have a warrant. So in that sense, it's not as concerning as if they're going to do it in a warrantless way. But do you see this slope getting slippery is where I'm going with it. Well, the slope is pretty slippery already given the bad decisions, the bad case law on the warrant requirement. And I know that one, one issue that's, that's, uh, that you've been very much uh, involved in is this question about the third-party exception to the warrant requirement, that if you voluntarily right. – voluntarily in quotes – give information to a third party, then the government can get that information without a warrant that, that applies to you. And, you know, everything I own is on Google. <laughs> right. And I right. voluntarily put it there. I mean, every email I've ever written is, is on Google somehow or another. So that is a, a, that's one of those issues that I think ultimately, if this were a sane and reasonable world, would, would result in a constitutional amendment. Because this is the kind of 
technology so far beyond what the founding fathers could possibly have imagined that ultimately it's going to have to require the nation to sit down and say, what are the rules to safeguard people's legitimate privacy interests while still allowing uh, uh, investigations and intelligence services to do their business as they need to. And right. I, there is no easy answer to that question. And there certainly I actually, isn't an easy answer to the question. I actually do think I have an answer to the, to the issue. I actually do think that you can get rid of that so-called third-party doctrine and still give the government the ability to use you know, secret agents and all the other legitimate investigative mm-hmm. procedures that were being used and gave rise to the third party doctrine in the first place. And, mm-hmm. you know, briefly, the way that I think you could do it is you could rely on the common law doctrine of what's called illegal contract. So, you know, Tony Soprano's in his basement and he's talking to one of his confederates in crime. And there's at least an implicit agreement between them that his confederate is not supposed to spill the beans about anything that's going on between them. But that agreement between them is, of course, unenforceable because it's part of a larger criminal scheme. And so if that turned out to be an agent and stuff, you wouldn't need to have all the typical protections, you know, Mm -hmm. warrant, probable cause and all those things. Sure. So I don't even think we need the third party doctrine. And today, you know, you talk about voluntary in quotes. It is voluntary for us to use Google and Apple and Facebook and all these wonderful things. But, I mean, these are the things that allow us to reap the benefits of a complex, advanced, technologically uh, developed society. And the idea that in choosing to use these things, suddenly this information that we're sharing is not going to get the Fourth Amendment protections is, I think, ridiculous. I I was sad to see Scalia pass away because he has been... I think, you know, kind of slowly bringing us back to a more property-based understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And right. I think where that eventually goes is to recognize the role of property and contract as a basis for privacy. And I think where that goes is a better understanding of the third-party doctrine and where they went wrong. So that's kind of, you know, me and what I do in a nutshell. But um, I, I don't know what the hopes for that are. I don't know how this Garland stands on privacy issues. I know that Sotomayor had said at one point that she was maybe willing to reconsider the third-party doctrine, but probably not along the lines that you or I would want. Right. Yeah, and you're right about Scalia being a surprisingly uh, forward-thinking justice on these issues. He wrote the famous uh, Kylo versus the United States case, which held that the you it was a case where the police went down the road with a an infrared camera to find uh, people who were using grow lights to grow marijuana in their houses hydroponically, and he held that you do have to get a fourth you have to get a, a warrant under the Fourth Amendment for that, even though it's not intrusive because it's using uh, this kind of unusual technology in, a, in an unusual way. So that, I think that that really and you read that opinion, it's a very principled opinion. It's nothing you know that depends on the particular circumstances or anything is a very well written opinion so you're right he was a surprisingly uh, uh, advanced thinking thinker on these issues yeah and similarly in United States versus Jones in 2012 where he uh, you know with the court held that if you put a GPS tracking device onto a car that is in effect a trespass to chattels it is a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. And so this, you know, kind of gets you back to a property-based understanding of the Fourth Amendment. And I thought it was, you know, such a promising development to see him, 
you know, die so suddenly. People said he, you know, he, he died maybe under some of the better circumstances you could imagine for someone. He got to go out and have a wonderful day. I guess he was hunting and, you know, passed right. away in his sleep and everything. So good for him, but probably not so good for us who are who are left. Right. Um I wanted to give you a couple minutes. We're just about out of time. Can you go ahead and tell us uh, where to find you at the Goldwater Institute, anything that you want to plug that's coming up, et cetera? Well, people who want to learn more about the Indian Child Welfare Act case can check out our website at equalprotection.org. Our main website is goldwaterinstitute.org, where you can find out more about our Property Ownership Fairness Act, our efforts to get states to protect property rights at the state level more than they currently are doing. You can get my book at Amazon, on Cato Institute's website. They've published it. The Cato Institute published it. Um, you can get it on Barnes & Noble's website. Um, and you can get my forthcoming book, actually, is going to be coming out in September called The Permission Society, uh, which is uh, for pre-sale right now on, on Amazon. Um, and in particular, I, I hope people will, will check out the, the work that we're doing involving state constitutions and protecting individual rights against the, either the federal government or against violations of our rights by local governments by using the provisions of our state constitutions. It's very often forgotten or ignored that our state constitutions protect our rights often more than the federal government does. Right. Except that people forget about them. They don't enforce them. So please check out our work at goldwaterinstitute.org and, and find out more about that and how you can help our efforts. We're supported entirely by donations from people who agree with what we do. And uh, if people want to help us out, can find out how there. Okay, great. Thank you so much for this discussion. It's been enlightening and fun and uh, just information-packed. I highly recommend your book, by the way, because it is easy to read, has a lot of information, it contains entertaining references to, you know, culture as, as you've had throughout this interview. So I'm highly recommending it. And any of your other books, I'm sure, are, are the same as well. So thanks so much. Thanks so much. And we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Um, everyone who's listening, thank you for tuning in here. And I'm going to go ahead and leave you with a little musical exit. Um, if you want to go and leave some comments on this show, if you want to also check out some links that I put together to Timothy Sandifer's um, amicus brief in support of Lexi's foster family in the Lexi Page case, I've got a link to Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America at Amazon, etc. You can check that out at don'tletitgo.com. Otherwise, I look forward to talking to all of you next week. Have a great weekend.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.